The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Each business is unique and operated individually of others in the same industry. What they have in common is the potential path to success. Welcome to The Second Stage with your hosts, Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. In today's program, we'll address the obstacles that many businesses find on that path to success and discuss what entrepreneurs and their businesses are doing to stay ahead of the curve. Now, here is Brendan Anderson and Jeffrey Cadlick. Hello, everybody. This is Jeff Cadlick here on The Second Stage. My partner, Brendan Anderson, is out on assignment. Uh, he's actually out in California. Uh, uh, enjoying some fine weather. We're actually having nice weather here in Northeast Ohio. It's kind of went from winter to summer uh, within a week or so, and I'm not complaining. I'm just uh, stating the obvious. It uh, was in the 90s here over the weekend, and I spent, uh, as did everybody else in Northeast Ohio, outside uh, the entire weekend. Um, as we move into the week, we've got a wonderful show for you today, as we do each week. Uh, this week, we've got a guest by the name of John Carvalho. He's the co-founder of Divestopedia, www.divestopedia.com. Uh, as you plan to sell your business, remember, you can never start too early and don't go it alone. Finding the right professional or professionals to help you through the pr- process is essential. Here to join us today for today's discussion on selling your business is the co-founder, as I said, John Carvalho of Divestopia. Sharing his knowledge and expertise as a seasoned M&A professional, we'll speak with John about some of the more difficult issues he frequently sees during the sale process and ways to possibly avoid these common pitfalls. We will also discuss not only why identifying the right advisor is so crucial, but tips and resources for finding the advisor or partner that best fits your needs as you go through this important phase in your business life cycle. So John is somebody uh, that is in our ecosystem here at Evolution Capital Partners, and like all of our guests, is very, very passionate about helping small business owners and entrepreneurs. And that, honestly, is uh, the criteria for being a guest here on uh, Evolution Capital Partners. She's going to give you uh, actionable advice, and uh, we're anxious to have him come on our show uh, today. I want to remind everybody about last week's show. Uh, it was with uh, Shyla Morris. Uh, from um, Squeeze In, which is a restaurant chain out in uh, Nevada and uh, California. These are wonderful, wonderful folks, and uh, they have been incredibly successful, and they go out of their way, like a lot of folks that we enjoy spending time with, sharing their expertise and advice with other entrepreneurs so that they can have similar amounts of, of success. 
Um, there's a couple interesting points about their wonderful story. And the first and foremost is, is that uh, it's really a family-run business. Uh, Shyla and her husband uh, are co-owners of the restaurant along with uh, Misty Young, her, uh, Shyla's mother, and her husband. Uh, and they've written a book. Uh, they've got all these manuals in place that describe how to, as they call them, the five irrefutable laws of restaurant success. I originally met Shyla and Misty uh, when I was participating in a um, kind of a, 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 a Shark Tank type arrangement at a conference that I participate in each year. And they were so on target. They were on the money. Uh, I was so impressed that we tried to to work with them, and they run uh, a wonderful shop, and we have so many common uh, core values that we've learned from them, and and hopefully they've learned a little bit from us. But one of the great things that came out of our show last week was that uh, their five irrefutable laws of restaurant success are fairly similar to our five pillars of business freedom. Uh, they talk about leadership. Uh, they talk about operations. What can you systematize? They talk about financials, uh, understanding the numbers and having accurate and timely financial reporting, uh, products and services, and then marketing. Uh, they have this great way of building out new locations. Uh, it really emanates from this egghead breakfast club. And what they do when people dine at Squeeze In is they give them a card to fill out uh, you know, their home address and, and so on and so forth, their contact information. And then when they get 5,000 cards within a certain geographic area, they open a new location and they pre-market the location by sending an invite to each one of their Egghead Breakfast Club members and they, um, they show up and so each location is instantaneously profitable, which uh, from an investment perspective is uh, incredible. And uh, they, they just opened a new location in their fifth location in Redwood City, California. And it's already, it was, it was profitable the very first day because they had so many people show up from the Egghead Breakfast Club. And uh, again, wonderful story, wonderful people. Uh, I follow them on Twitter and I suggest that you do as well. Um, uh, and so anyway, check it out, the show, and check out uh, Squeeze It In. Uh, they make outstanding uh, breakfast omelets. Uh, I also, before our guest, uh, John Carvalho, uh, joins us from Divestopia, uh, excuse me, Divestopedia, uh, joins us. I wanted to share some thoughts on an uh, article that I wrote for a Northeast Ohio business magazine. And I wrote it on a topic that does not get a lot of coverage, but I think is essential to being successful as a entrepreneur, small business owner, and that is your physical and mental health. Uh, there's no shortage of stories about how incredibly draining mentally and physically running a small business can be for a founder. And one characteristics that all of these uh, small companies have is that they still rely very much on the founder of the business to make things happen. So the point is, is if the founder doesn't show up for work because they're sick for a week, uh, the company is not going to move forward. So it really matters 
the physical and mental health of the of the founder uh, to make sure that business moves forward. So, I offered a few uh, points here that I thought or things that I live by uh, to make sure that uh, people remain healthy and are successful. The first is regular exercise. I run, swim, bike. I do triathlons. You don't need to go to that level uh, to maintain uh, your health. But uh, it for me, it reduces my stress level um, and it keeps my weight down. Uh, which are two really, really important things uh, when you are trying to run a business day in and day out. I like to read as well. Uh, I have a lot of different interests outside of Evolution Capital Partners and our partner companies, and it gets my mind off into other areas and uh, certainly makes me a more well-rounded person. Uh, Thirdly, sitting down for a family dinner at least twice a week. I wish it could be more, uh, but this is very important for my spiritual health and balance. Um, Spending time reconnecting with the family, uh, again, Get your mind off of, of work and really focuses your mind on the most important thing, and that is is your family. I'm a weekend napper. That's my fourth. Uh, you got to have a lot of sleep. I don't sleep a lot during the week, probably because I'm ingesting too much caffeine. But uh, getting catching up, if you can, on sleep uh, is something you ought to ought to do. Maintaining that that right balance of, of rest. Uh, the fifth is disconnecting from the digital age when you're with your family. You know, put the phone down, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, get away from email, all that sort of stuff. So when you're engaging with your family, they know that you're 100% with them. They know better than anybody that you're only getting part of their attention. And then lastly, and something I've really tried to learn more recently is eating healthy. It's really difficult when you're running through airports and uh, you're in and out of meetings all day uh, and then you're famished at the end of the day and you're really making some bad food choices. But uh, the first suggestion for eating healthy is eat something for breakfast. Uh, you know, if you get to lunch famished, you're going to make a bad food decision, like getting a double Big Mac. Uh, not that double Big Macs are, are, aren't any good. It's just it's a lot of food. Um Eat vegetables and protein at every meal. Uh, you know the vegetables will fill you up. The protein will fill you up and will help control your hunger a lot longer. Uh, drink plenty of water. At some point, caffeine doesn't work anymore, and drinking plenty of water flushes out the system and keeps you health healthy. Portion control. I've slowed down my eating so that I take a break partway through lunch uh, or dinner, and I'll kind of let my mind and stomach <laughs> calibrate, if you will, and I'll decide whether or not I need to continue to eat. And remember, you're not supposed to eat until you're stuffed. You're supposed to eat until you're satisfied. Uh, I avoid fast food and processed foods, which means staying away from boxes and packages uh, as best I can. Um, and if you're too busy, uh, you know, prepare meals and snacks the night before, even the weekend before, uh, so that you can just kind of pick it up and go and not have to spend time during the week thinking about um, uh, what, you're, what you're putting into your system. So those are some of the things that I wrote about and uh, that have worked for me. I hope you'll consider uh, using uh, some of that advice uh, and keeping your mental and health uh, mental and physical health uh, top-notch so that your business can run 
at Top Notch. Uh, before we take a break here on this segment, I want to uh, thank our uh, our sponsors, McGladry LLP. They're a leading provider of assurance, tax, and consulting services focused on small and mid-sized businesses nationwide with more than 6,700 6, people in 75 U.S. cities. Um, and I always like to remind everybody that each week um, is is really a dialogue uh, between where we're trying to bring in best practices to our listeners. Uh, you contribute to the conversation uh, by uh the, uh, our blog at evolutioncp.com and also emailing us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. And we also have a Twitter feed. Uh, it is at the second stage. Uh, that's 2ND stage. Uh, and hope to, to hear from you. Uh, with that, we're going to take a break here in the second stage. We're going to be back with our guest, uh, John Carvalho from divestopedia.com. By the time John gets on, I'll have that down. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Find out what's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. Today, enterprise technology is both strategic and global. Each week on CIO Talk Radio, IT thought leaders from around the world share their experiences with listeners as they discuss with Sunjog All how they are trimming costs and partnering with business to innovate and help IT become more competitive. This means better care for customers and improves the corporate bottom line. If you want to keep up with IT thought leadership, listen to CIO Talk Radio with Sunjog All every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel, the bottom line in business talk. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. Welcome back to the show, The Second Stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. My partner, Brendan Anderson, is out of the office, or I should say studio. He's out of the studio today, but uh, we have got a wonderful guest today. His name is John Carvalho. He's the co-founder of Divestopedia. That's www.divestopedia.com. 
It's an online resource to help educate business owners on all topics related to selling a business. John has 15 years of deal-making experience helping business owners with valuation, exit strategies, and executing M&A deals. Uh, He is also the president and founder of Stone Oak Capital, Inc., an acquisition and value creation advisory firm. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Jeffrey, for having me. I appreciate it. It is my pleasure. Anybody that wants to help out entrepreneurs and support their cause, we uh, we want to have you on the show. Uh, John also has a couple Twitter handles here that I want you all to uh, subscribe to. The first is at John P. Carvalho, that's C-A-R-V-A-L-H-O, and then at Divestopedia, D-I-V-E-S. T O P E D I A, uh, John. What what was the the thought process behind founding Divestopedia and and trying to help small business owners exit their business? Yeah, so you know, I'm an I'm an M and A advisor and and was really just looking for a platform to help educate business owners on the complexity of selling a business. Uh, you know, and I'm sure you, you've you've probably seen the same, but um, it's it's really uh, fascinating how little business owners know about you know one of the biggest potential transactions of their their lifetime, uh, and and you know understandably so. Not many business owners probably exit a business more than once or twice, so it's understandable that they you know they they really put off that that understanding uh, of a sale you know kind of to the final final minutes, but. Um, you know, just just went through my career, saw that you know there was a real lack of, of information out there, or high quality information, uh, with regards to the sale of a, a lower mid market business. Uh, lots of information on on the bulge bracket side, uh, you know, bigger businesses and, and public transactions, but nothing really in that lower mid market space. Um, and you know, I don't know if it was by luck or by design, but but I came across uh, my my uh, partner Corey Jansen, who was the founder of Investopedia who's kind of in my local market here, and, and I kind of told him about my desire to, to really reach a wider audience around, uh, you know, this, this platform of education on, on selling a business. And, and he kind of resonated with that. He was a, he was a business owner and an entrepreneur, uh, and he just came off of selling his business to Forbes uh, in 2007. So, you know, he really resonated with that concept because he had just gone through the process. Uh, so him and I have been working diligently over the last... Uh, two or three years, and and you know we've built something of mass here, and you know I'm proud to say that you know I think I think we're making a little bit of a difference on on the education side of just um, you know helping business owners you know find topics, real specific topics around uh, you know selling a lower mid market business. So John, I mean, as as a, a, a business broker advisor, you're in business for yourself. How did you decide to go into business for yourself? Uh. You know, I guess, I guess uh, just a little bit of the entrepreneurial bug, I guess, came over me. And, and you know, I thought I was working at, at a, a big uh, M&A advisory firm and, and, you know, a great firm. I thought we were delivering great service. But, um, you know, as, as most entrepreneurs have, they have that sense that they can do it. They, they want to do it their own way. Uh, you know, so that kind of came over me. And, and uh, you know, I think it was back in 2010, I just decided that, that I, wanted, I wanted to try uh, try try to execute uh, you know deals and and work directly with owners and and put my own stamp on on the way that uh, you know 
lower mid-market deals were were actually executed. So that that was kind of it. It was just more of an entrepreneurial bug uh, that got into me, and, and I had to explore it. And you know, thankfully, it's worked out. Well, during the break, John, you had mentioned that you could relate to my earlier comments from my article about <laughs> having good mental and physical health as a small business owner. I'm sure you could speak to that. Yeah, I can. I actually uh, just coming back from uh, I'm, I'm, I've turned into a CrossFitter over the last uh, two years. So I uh, just came back over lunchtime uh, to a CrossFit class and, and we uh, we did a, a one kilometer benchmark trial. And, and I sad to say I'm not I'm not a very fast, fast runner. So uh, <laughs> my time wasn't very good. But, you know, definitely seen an improvement in, in kind of, you know, the physical stamina for sure. Um, you know, I'm pretty diligent on, on eating healthy. If uh, I don't know if your listeners would uh, would find this valuable, but I've just kind of tapped into uh, an app on my iPhone called uh, Let me just find it here, My Fitness Pal, uh, and it help, helps you track calories and and uh, you know how much protein and how much carbs you're getting in today. So um, you know, managing calories is, is really one way to to keep on top of of uh, staying fit and, and staying you know relatively lean. Um, so yeah, I, I, I definitely can relate to uh, to what you talked about on the mental and physical health side. Well, I, I appreciate that endorsement, and I'm familiar with that My Fitness Pal, and it's a great app. So I'm glad that you you brought that up. So you know, kind of more on today's topic. You know, why should a business owner use an MA advisor to sell their business? Uh, you know, I, I think there's really uh, three reasons that I have seen. Uh, all my business owners should to really, you know, think about using an M&A advisor when they're selling their business. And, you know, the first is I think it creates a real buffer between the buyer and the seller. Uh, you know, the, the, the when you're selling a business, you know, buyers that come around are, are going to point out all the warts that are in the business. And, and, and no business owner really wants to hear that. So having someone in between is, is going to be a little bit of a buffer to that. Uh, you know, I think the second thing is just experience. Uh, you know, as I, as I kind of kicked it off, business owners, you know, will only exit a business once or twice in their uh, in their lifetime. So you, you don't know what you don't know. Uh, and, and a business broker or M&A advisor or investment banker, you know, has done dozens, if not, you know, hundreds of transactions. So, you know, they bring a lot of experience and, and really know how to navigate, you know, all the ups and downs that you're going to see throughout that process. And the third really important point of hiring an M&A advisor, I think, is just perception. Uh, you, you definitely don't want to go into a transaction um, with the perception that you're not serious to close a deal. Uh, so hiring uh, an investment banker, M&A advisor, you know, just, just shows buyers that you're serious about this and, and that, you know, you put, you put some thought into this, you've hired an advisor, you've spent some money, uh, and now you're ready to, to, to you know, transact, uh, you know, and, and not, not on any terms, but on the right terms. You're, you're ready to, to go into this transaction and, and you've, you've, you've put a lot of thought and effort into it. So, how much time uh, once you're engaged with a client, John, that that you are kind of ready to go to market? There's a lot of effort that you put in before you're you're even reaching out to uh, potential buyers. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, there, there's internal diligence that has to be done on the business. Um, you know, even before the diligence happens, I think, you know, as an advisor, you really want to sit down with the 
with the owner and, and understand their objectives. What are they trying to achieve in the transaction? You know, a lot of times it's, it's getting the highest price and, and maximizing value, but, but other times there, there are other concerns. It might be, uh, you know, involvement of, of family members or it might be, uh, you know, making sure that the employees are taken care of after a deal. Um, but whatever those objectives are, you really need to, to understand them. Uh, and that takes time. It takes, uh, you know, some, some strategy sessions. It takes, uh, you know, lots of long conversations with the business owner. Uh, from there, you, you move on to the internal deal and, and, you know, depending on where the business is uh, in, in terms of readiness, um, you know, if a business is really ready, then, then you, you move on to kind of the preparation of marketing documents um, and, and, you know, discussions with potential buyers. But if, if the business isn't, then there might be some cleanup, uh, and that can take anywhere from, from three to four months. Um, so, so it really depends on the situation, but uh, there's a lot of heavy lifting that has to be done before you pick up the phone and, uh, and call the first buyer to, to say that uh, you know, the business is, is on the market. And what are some of the key things that you're looking for in readiness, and um, what do you mean by that? Uh, you know, so, so there, are some, uh, there are some characteristics that uh, buyers don't like to see. So things like customer concentration. Uh, if one customer makes up, call it more than 50% of the total revenue of a business, that's definitely a, a red flag for potential buyers. Uh, legal uh, legal issues or, or uh, litigation within the business can definitely be a red flag. Um, so, so those things that, that are going to be obvious if they they come out in, in you know before you. Uh, before the, they're cleaned up or before you go out to, to market, you definitely want to have uh, a story for why that's happening or you, you maybe want to reassess actually taking the business out to market uh, and maybe fixing those things over a period of uh, four months or, or even a year uh, and then revisiting the sales process if and when those things are, are corrected. Mm-hmm. So how do you go about finding a credible investment banker or firm? Uh, so, so there are a couple of Things that you need to consider. I think. I think the first is just you know what what type of firm is right um, for the business that's that's wanting to sell. You, you know, there there are kind of the, the three three types. There's the, the local boutique investment bank. Um, so you know, a bank within your area that has maybe call it uh, two to to fifteen. Uh, investment banking professionals. Uh, there are regional investment banks, so you know multiple locations across uh, the country. Uh, and then there are the bulge bracket uh, firms that you know typically work on on deals uh, with enterprise value, you know, greater than that that fifty million dollars uh, enterprise value. So so you want to assess which bank is is right for you know the size of your business. And then uh, when you've kind of narrowed that down and, and you have a few um, either boutique, regional, or bulge, bulge bracket banks that, that you want to approach, um, then, you, then you need to start thinking about who's the actual individual that's going to work on my transaction. Uh, you know, what's my accessibility to that person? You know, how many other deals does that person have on the go at any one time? I mean, if he's juggling 10, uh, 10 massive deals, your deal's probably not going to be at the top of the pile uh, in terms of priority. You want to look at that person's deal-making experience and reputation. I mean, how many deals has he taken on versus how many deals has he actually closed? Um, you know, you, you want to look at the network of contacts that that person has. You know, as much as uh, you know, you, you like to people like to think it. You know, this industry is, is what you know. It's still it's still a game of who you know as well. 
Um, and, and then and the final and I think most important thing when, you, when you're actually working at or looking at the person that, that you're going to be working with to sell your business, it, it really is, uh, you know, down to, to chemistry and tr- trust. You know, how much do you trust the person's advice um, that, that you've engaged and, and, you know, is there a chemistry there? Are you, you're going to be working with this person for a period of, uh, you know, anywhere from, from six, six months to a year. So, so you actually have to uh, enjoy being with this person. Um, you have to, again, trust what they're saying, and, and you have to, you know, kind of put a little bit of faith in their experience and, and expertise. Yeah, you know, I think that last one is is really important because what we see oftentimes is is that these small business owners use brokers that they don't trust really as a means to an end. That they trust that they'll bring them buyers, but they don't trust them evaluating the buyers. So they're going to talk to everybody and you're not sure, you know, where this is going because they haven't been through the process before like the broker has. And there's that lack of trust between the two. We see that actually quite often. And, and, you know, we're trying to figure out from our end, you know, how to get, you know, the process moving forward. And um, it just is gets disjointed when you've got uh, all those dynamics in the situation. So I think that's a, that's an excellent point. So, um, yeah, and I can just to add to that. I think, uh, you know, so, sometimes uh, business owners see the, the fees that M&A advisors and, and investment bankers uh, will make on their deal, and, and they try to go, you know, maybe maybe a cheaper route. Um, and, and the phrase I always use in those cases is, you know, especially in this instance, it's expensive being cheap. Um, so, so when you when you when you pick a, an investment banker solely on on the price that you're paying, I mean, um, you know, it, it is again one of the biggest transactions that that most business owners will will undergo. Um, so, so picking uh, an investment banker solely on on the fees that they're charging is is a dangerous game. Yeah, and so let's talk about that. The, you know, the discussion on investment banking fees. Really, you know, what's what is reasonable. You know, it's funny because before I started Divestopedia, you know, I've I, I always tried to search, you know, what's what are what a reasonable range of fees uh, online, and, and it seemed like there was nothing out there uh, in the public realm. Uh, you know, it's a very kind of uh, behind closed doors, secretive topic that that uh, a lot of um, you know advisors don't don't really like to talk about. Um, you know, but but from my experience and and. My, you know, just kind of canvassing other investment bankers, other advisors. You know, I think I think a general rule of thumb would be, you know, call it for a ten million dollar enterprise value transaction. Uh, you're looking at, uh, you know, a five hundred thousand dollar fee or five percent uh, kind of commission. Twenty five million dollar enterprise value, about a million dollars would be a reasonable range. Uh, and then, you know, if we're getting into the the fifty million dollars, you're kind of looking at one point five million or three percent of the enterprise value. Um, so, so those are kind of benchmarks that I use to say, okay, this is if I was working on a deal, this is kind of the fees uh, that that I would uh, that I would look to be compensated uh, at. Um, you know, more more important than the overall fee, I think the structure of the engagement is important as well. So, you know, if if there's targets that that the business owner wants to uh, thinks you know his value, the value of his business is is at. Um, and, and an investment banker exceeds that value, then, then maybe there should be you know, additional incentive for him to try to exceed that value. So structuring uh, engagements at different tiers, I think, is a, is a good way to attack 
um, you know, the investment banking engagement letters. Um, you know, the other thing that maybe I'd like to just pass along to the listeners here is that the fees and structures, too, are, are not set in stone. They're, they're all negotiable. Um, and, and, you know, there really is a lot of devil in, in the detail regarding, um, you know, some of the other clauses around, you know, exclusivity, fee tails, uh, you know, things like out clauses. How, how do you get out of the agreement if things aren't working out? So, so you know, f- fees are definitely important, but there are definitely other uh, little um you know structures and, and clauses that need to be considered uh, when you're when you're engaging an investment banker. So, isn't there the concept though also of a retainer fee while you're doing the diligence, you know, on the business and you're spending your time on it, preparing it to go to market and putting up uh, an offering memorandum together, you know? Our experience has been is that people do take a maintenance or a you know a retainer fee because you are using up you know the the investment banker's time. Yeah, for sure there are so there work fee a retainer fee. Um, you know typically you know call it five to ten thousand dollars a month, maybe higher for bigger transactions. Um, you know those fees I guess are just to cover overhead costs, um, actual you know um, travel that might be included in in the deal. Um, so those 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 are, are just like you said maintenance fees to um, to help prepare some of the marketing documents before you you go to uh, to market and and you know one thing that's often negotiated is that those fees um, so say that you know all in you put in a hundred thousand dollars of of work fees or retainer fees uh, throughout the you know the months leading to a close uh, those fees are, are typically deducted from a contingency fee at the end. Uh, of the engagement. So something to watch out for, for business owners. And then you had also, I mean, some of the other negotiating points are around, uh, you know, let's say that that uh, it's not necessarily a successful end uh, to that engagement. Uh, isn't there some kind of a tale where if, if uh, the business is sold within let's say 12 months of the end of that engagement that, that uh, the, the investment banker receives some compensation for their efforts? Yeah, and that, that's one of the clauses that a business owner should pay particular attention to. Um, so it, it's typically with uh, parties that you've entered into some deep, deeper discussions. Um, maybe not necessarily getting to, uh, you know, past an LOI, but have definitely presented them to, um, you know, the buyer or, or the seller and, and have had some, some, you know, good discussions around, uh, you know, the business. Maybe they've signed an NDA, have received a, a confidential information memorandum already. So as a business owner, you definitely want to limit uh, that fee tail to those parties that you've had those discussions with. Um, you know, in a lot of cases, and, and uh, I don't want to say a lot of cases, but in, in some cases, you know, um, if you're not careful on the language around that clause, it, it could encompass, you know, the hundred potential buyers that uh, a business broker or M&A advisor has just called and, and uh, you know, brought to the attention of, of the potential buyers. So if you, uh, in in the period following that, that clause, so say, you know, the, uh, you're no longer with the investment banker. Um, he's reached out to a hundred clients, 
you subsequently close a deal on your own with uh, those hundred, uh, you know, potential buyers that he reached out to, uh, you would still be on the hook for that that you know a portion of the su- succession fee, which is uh, which which really isn't deserved. I don't think in that case. So a, a buyer definitely has to be wary of that and. Um, again, devil is in the detail. You need to understand it. Uh, if there isn't clarity around it, you need to put some clarity around it in, in the engagement letter. We're here with uh, John Carvalho, co-founder of uh, Divestopedia, www.divestopedia.com. Uh, John is also the president and founder of Stone Oak Capital Incorporated, an acquisition and value creation advisory firm. Uh, so, John, you know, what are some of the most difficult issues to overcome in the sales process? Yeah, I think, so, I mean, there, there are, are many uh, ups and downs throughout the sales process, and, and I'm sure you, you, would, uh, you would attest to that, Jeffrey. Um, but, but I kind of heard this from, from uh, a guest on Divestopedia the other day, and I thought it was a great way uh, that, that he broke down the sales process. So he put uh, the issues in three buckets. The first would be around allocation of risk, um, and this would include uh, in a purchase and sale agreement the negotiation of representations and warranties. So the buyer is trying to push all the risk to the seller. The seller is trying to push all the risk um, to the buyer, and, and it's it's usually a, a game of hot potato. This uh, this this person. Uh, kind of classified it as, which I thought was a good analogy. Uh, the second bucket is really around price versus terms. Um, so, so valuation, and then, you know, that, that's always an issue in, in most transactions that I've been involved in. Um, but but even, even more so than just the, the actual dollar number, it's, it's how, is that, how is that purchase price going to be paid? So, you know, maybe you can have a $10 million valuation, um, but if $5 million of that $10 million is paid out in uh, five years from now, then, then that's definitely different than, than $10 million in all cash today. So uh, the price versus terms is, is always an issue uh, that's contentious. Uh, and then the third um, bucket that was discussed was, was just the mechanics and logistics uh, of doing the deal. You know, so when is the deal going to close? Um, you know what happens in in with, with you know other ancillary assets, call it real estate. So so all the mechanics and logistics around actually uh, closing a deal, um, you know, is is a much lesser um, contentious issue uh, around closing. But 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 really the two are, are allocation of risk uh, and price versus terms that that are, are definitely some issues to overcome in the sales process. And as far as you know, the allocation of risk between the buyer and the seller, wouldn't you find a lot of that in the purchase agreement? Is that is that where you would look? I mean, that's the, the area where the, the deal's being negotiated, you would find that? Yeah, for sure. And the purchase uh, purchase and sale agreement is, is where that would be uh, negotiated and, and, you know, documented and, and represented. Um, and actually, I was just at an M&A uh, kind of talk this morning, and, and they brought up the um, idea of, of representation and warranty insurance, which I guess is a, a newer trend in, in kind of the risk mitigation on, on, uh, for both buyers and sellers in, in selling a business. So something that, that I think will be more prevalent here in the upcoming years and uh, something that, that helps uh, you know, allocate that risk, I guess, from, from buyer and seller now to uh, owe to uh, insurance companies. So. 
Right. And just so our listeners uh, uh, remember that you're in the purchase agreement, one particular segment as the seller, you're representing to the buyer that certain things are true and those that aren't true are going to be set aside in a schedule in the back of the purchase agreement. And then you're warranting against those representations uh, with various mechanisms uh, that we've talked about on prior shows. But I wanted to clarify John's point because he's right on the mark in terms of uh, some of the hot negotiating items inside the purchase agreement. Um, so during that process and really kind of throughout the process, John, what what role is an investment banker playing? Yes, so there are many hats that the investment banker wears throughout the uh, the entire process. You know, I think, I think, I think at the onset, and I've touched on this before, but the, at the onset, it's you know, once you get engaged, it's, it's really maybe even before you get engaged, it's, it's really flushing out what are the objectives of the owner. Um, you know, is is uh, is, an, is a full sale the objective? Is it a transfer to a family member? Is it a partial sale where you're finding investors or partners? Um, so it really is kind of understanding, uh, you know, the objectives and the options that are out there um, f- for the business owner when they're thinking about exiting um, or transitioning their business. Um, you know, the, the second important function that a investment banker plays is just establishing and, and managing expectations. Uh, you know, so, so good investment bankers bring to the table uh, an idea of, of you know what the market will bear. They they will bring, um, you know, a real good um, detailed analysis of what they think they can obtain in the market, um, and they'll also provide a, a good understanding of of what deal structures um, are are going to be, you know, most likely consummated in a transaction, and that helps the business owner not to get these wild expectations that. You know their business is worth uh, fifty million when when really it's worth twenty five because a, a deal will never get closed once uh, you know once those expectations are you know initially set in, in the business owner's mind. Um, thirdly, I, I think uh, you know obviously preparing marketing documents, finding qualified buyers, um, and and really that that's not as important as one might think. Um, we recently did an article in Divestopedia where uh, there was a survey of, of business owners, and uh, before they sold their business, what they thought the most important function of an investment banker was. And uh, a majority of them said finding qualified buyers was probably the most important uh, thing. And then after they actually went through the transaction, uh, they revisited these questions, and, and they found that actually finding the qualified buyers was not as important as the actual negotiation of the deal. Um, so, you know, if you have a good company, there are going to be uh, a number of qualified buyers that are going to be interested. Um, and, you know, th- that's almost kind of a commodity type service is finding the buyers. Being able to negotiate uh, the best deal um, and really maximize value, and that, that, that is, um, you know, something that, that is the pinnacle of, of a real great, uh, you know, M&A advisor. So, and, and finally, I, I think... Just overall, the investment banker's role is to be a quarterback, uh, help for a real smooth transaction, help maximize value, help um, coordinate between all of the different advisors, be it you know the wealth planners and uh, the lawyers and the accountants. Um, so, so really take the lead in terms of quarterbacking, um, you know, the deal and and all of the the parties involved. 
You know, that's one of the, that's a great point because what I tell our partner companies when we're in the going through the sale process is if you do what you say you're going to do and you hit your numbers and the business is running smoothly, then everything will work itself out and you're going to get the value that the market will bear. And that's why having a good investment banker that can quarterback, you know, the situation is, is vital because you want the business owner to be spending as much time running the business uh, and making sure that they're hitting or exceeding budget uh, than, than if they're trying to wear multiple hats. And frankly, you, you know, a lot of times when we're buying a business, um, you don't necessarily have a strong, uh, you know, advisor involved and the business owner gets overwhelmed, you know, with, uh, you know, an institutional underwriting uh, that they go through and they, when they partner with, with evolution and, and the company suffers. So we just see this phenomena where they kind of stumble out of the gates because they haven't been running the business full time for, you know, several months. So uh, yeah, I think yeah. that that is, that is an excellent point. Yeah, and a lot of times, you know, I've seen that it really kills deals if you're not hitting your forecasts. Um, you know, you have a forecast set out, uh, you know, call it day one, and the transaction goes on for six months. So a buyer can see if you're hitting your forecast month over month, um, and, and, you know, if it's, if it's more, more, uh, more common than not that you're missing your forecast, it re- a buyer really loses confidence in, in the business's ability to, A, you know, f- forecast the business and, and understand where the business is going, um, but, B, the, the valuation, um, you know, it comes into question because, you know, valuation is all, is all the, you know, discounted future cash flow. So um, if, if what you're saying is, is not coming to bear and is not, uh, you know, materializing, then, then you know, a, a buyer will, will definitely go back to the drawing board uh, and re-question their valuation. So, um, you know, those, right. those are some challenges that, uh, that I've seen uh, in my experience uh, dealing with some business owners that just haven't, haven't really hit their forecast throughout the process. So, um, what is some general advice that you would give a business owner regarding the sales process? Uh, in your write-up, I actually noticed that, that you had, uh, you know, the discussion of just starting early. So, you know, business owners need to view this as, you know, a process, not necessarily a, a single event that, you know, happens on, on one day. Uh, starting early gives a business owner the ability to, you know, really understand the process. It gives them the ability to... Uh, look at options. It gives them the ability to find the perfect advisor, um, and and you know it gives them the ability to do a deal on their terms. That, that you know that's kind of our tagline at Divestopedia is, is you know, educating business owners so they can do a deal on their terms, um, and whatever those terms are. So if it's that if, if that's maximizing value, if that's you know transferring to your kids, if that's um, you know finding finding a, a, a suitable private equity partner. Um, you know, it really is, it, it, starting early just gives you the ability to explore all of those options. Um, I, I'd, I'd, some other advice I'd, I'd suggest is, is just get a business valuation. Uh, it doesn't have to be a formal business valuation. There are a lot of great investment banks that'll, you know, just to build a relationship with, uh, you know, good mid-market firms, they'll, they'll offer, uh, you know, a value assessment of, of businesses for free at no charge. Um, so take advantage of those things. Go out, understand, you know, 
is your business again five million or is it ten million? Um, and and once you figure out that number, does that meet your expectation? Um, are there things that you need to do to get it to to fifteen million? Because that's where you need to be. So it just gives you a benchmark of of where you are today um, and where you want to be when you actually get to the the right point of of selling your business. Um, and and the last thing I'd, I'd probably suggest is just keeping the finger, you know, for the business owner to keep the finger on the pulse of, of what's happening in the marketplace. Um, you know, market timing is so important to maximizing value, and, and I think a lot of business owners don't um, take enough consideration of that when, when they're looking at the exit process. They, they think about internally, what can I do, you know, to maximize uh, my EBITDA? What can I do to, you know, clean up my business, make sure I don't have uh, any sort of outstanding litigation or customer concentration, all of those things. Um, but they might miss, you know, maybe the best time to sell their business when there's lots of buyers, lots of capital, um, you know, and lots of, lots of interest in, in their industry. So keeping, keeping uh, a watch on what's happening in the marketplace um, you know, for example, right now, um, you know, with, with kind of historically low, you know, interest rates, um, lots of capital in the marketplace, um, you know, you really need to think is now a good time to maximize value um, and, and sell my business. Well, I think that's that's excellent uh, advice uh, for these business owners. And uh, we're here with John Carvalho, co-founder of uh, Divestopedia, www.divestopedia.com. And I want to thank him for being on our show. Uh, I thought he gave a lot of great advice. And we're going to move into a break here on uh, the second stage. And when I come back, I'll give some final thoughts on the show. But right now, uh, I want to thank John uh, for, for participating on the second stage. Thank, thank you. I had lots of fun. All right, folks. We'll be back here in a few minutes. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. This is Davis Love III, Ryder Cup captain and Team McGladry member. McGladry is about building relationships. That's the kind of team I want to be a part of. A team that builds deep understanding of each client's vision and unique way of doing business. The same attributes I look for and the partners I choose. It's this understanding that enables you and me to make confident decisions. When you trust the advice you're getting, you know your next move is the right move. This is the power of being understood. This is McGladry. Assurance Tax Consulting. Your favorite Voice America Talk Radio Network shows and hosts are in your car, outdoors, and wherever you need them to be. Listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are tuned in to The Second Stage. To reach the hosts or their guests today, call in to 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. Or send an email to thesecondstage at evolutioncp.com. Now, back to Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson. 
Welcome back to the second stage. This is Jeff Cadlick. Uh, my partner, Brendan Anderson, is uh, out of the office today. I uh, want to remind everybody that you can participate on each show by emailing us at the second stage at evolutioncp.com. You can follow us on our Twitter handle at the second stage. Uh, that's 2ND stage. And uh, certainly you can uh, also participate on our blog at evolutioncp.com. Our guest today, John Carvalho, co-founder of Divestopedia, www.divestopedia.com. He's also the president and co-founder of Stone Oak Capital, an acquisition and value advisory firm. I, I thought uh, John gave some great advice uh, you know, on, on the call uh, and in no particular order. He says it's expensive to be cheap <laughs> with regard to investment banking fees. I would also say that uh, with regard to uh, M&A lawyers, don't get any lawyer, get a transaction M&A lawyer that does this for a living is a very different, different, unique and specialized discipline. And uh, that will be money extremely well spent. John said that this is, uh, you know, once, maybe a twice in a lifetime event and you need to treat it with great care. Uh, and and I couldn't agree more with what he said. Uh, he talked a little bit about structure and investment banking fees. And I know we always have some kind of investment or incentive structure associated with the value that we expect to get from the business. Again, you know, we buy and sell businesses fairly regularly, so we have a handle on what we think something should be worth. And if they get uh, to a certain level or even better than that in what we call the bonus round, we're more than happy to share that additional upside uh, you know, for their hard work. Um, I agreed with what John had to say with regard to uh, you know, kind of selecting your investment advisor. You, know, you talked about the size of the transaction. Uh, you know, expertise, I think, is a key one. Uh, you know, they're, are they a specialist in a particular industry? Uh, understanding the industry individual that you're working with is something that John also mentioned, I think is is a, a great point. You don't you want to make sure you know exactly who you're working with and who is going to be talking to the potential buyers. Uh, he also mentioned the individual's network. I would say it another way, distribution. Uh, you know, if you want to um, you know have a wide distribution uh, and not everybody does, but if you do, you have to make sure that they have a wide network and wide national network to bring in potential buyers. Uh, John also mentioned reputation, which I think is very, very important. And uh, reputation in the sense that, you know, folks like John are only going to bring good companies that he's underwritten, so to speak, to market. Uh, and that really is what develops their reputation. Uh, and then trust, I think, is great. I mean, you want to be able to trust that the advisor knows knows the market, uh, you know, that they can manage your expectations about uh, the market value, uh, that they're going to be have the ability to find qualified buyers, that they're going to be able to negotiate a good deal on your behalf, and importantly, quarterback the deal so that you can run your business. Probably the most important thing that happens throughout this entire process is that you are hitting your budget uh, or exceeding your budget throughout the process because if you start falling behind, buyers will sit on their heels to see if that trend line reverses itself and you kind of get back in line. I love his points there towards the end about starting early. 
um, you know, and trying to get evaluation on the business. And also, you know, pick your head up out of your business and understand uh, where the industry is. Uh, industries fall in and out of favor, you know, all the time. You know, certain industries uh, like the for-profit education space is under particular regulatory scrutiny right now. And from an investment perspective, that's been, uh, you know, more difficult uh, from a valuation perspective on company owners in, in that particular industry. It won't always be that way, but at this particular time, it is. It's just, you know, one, one example. Um, so, all in all, I thought what uh, John was talking about was, was right on the mark. And I certainly love the fact that he uh, is... Um, you know, willing to share his knowledge with with investors. Uh, remember, uh, at the very beginning of the show, he shared that he is a CrossFitter and that he um, uh, has a new app on his phone, My Fitness Pal. It's something that I've seen, I've not used, but a lot of my friends have used it, and you can actually put in a date and a weight that you want to be at, and then it'll put you on a schedule to attain that weight by that particular date. Um, he also mentioned early on about some of the functions uh, that an uh, investment banker provides, including uh, a buffer between the buyer and the seller that the buyer or the seller doesn't really want to hear about all the warts in their business, which is true. Uh, experience, you know, these investment bankers, uh, at least the good ones, are specialists and understand uh, you know, uh, the, the actual transaction process, soup to nuts. The business owners don't typically uh, do this every day. And uh, as a specialist, uh, can really bring a lot to the table. Uh, and the perception, I thought, was a good point about showing buyers that you're serious, that you're spending money. The one thing I'd also add to this is confidentiality. Uh, the very beginning of the process, the identity of the company is only known by the most serious uh, potential buyers. Uh, so, folks out there. I hope you got a lot out of the show. I always do. That is the reason that Brendan and I uh, host this show because we continue to learn every day and we want to encourage you to think about not what your business is today, but think about what your business can be in the future and think about the power and have the passion for possibilities. Thanks for tuning in to the second stage. Thank you for tuning in this week to The Second Stage. Please join Jeffrey Cadlick and Brendan Anderson again next Monday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And have a successful week. 